As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. All right, welcome back, or welcome to what was formerly known as Throwback Thursday. Now, way back Wednesday, it's just a scheduling thing. It's a little bit easier for Kevin and I to get together on Wednesdays. Uh, to this point, we have recapped the 2005 race season, the 2006 season, the 2007 season. So it just uh, follows logic that uh, do, do, do the math. <laughs> today we lock in on 2008. Joining me as per usual, Kevin McKenna, uh, senior editor, national dragster, essentially racing historian, all things NHRA, sportsman drag racing, professional drag racing, you name it. He's like a walking encyclopedia. Kevin, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, I think, I think it would be quarantined encyclopedia at this point, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate the kind intro regardless. Uh, let's go back and, uh, and set the stage just a little bit for 2008 to just kind of, I like to do this to, uh, to take us back in time just a little bit. 2008, obviously the year that uh, Obama took presidency. This was the beginning of his first term. He's elected the 44th president of the United States. 2008 also brought us the Summer Olympics in Beijing. The only thing that I remember, Kevin, from the 2008 Beijing Olympics was it being the year of Michael Phelps. Eight gold medals, 2008 Summer Olympics. Michael yeah, it seems like he, he was certainly the, the star of the show. Although what I remember was, was the amazing over-the-top production for the um, the opening ceremonies. I don't think we'd, we'd ever seen anything like that. Uh, you know, God knows what it costs. Um, but I mean, I just remember that being an amazing spectacle. And then sure, you you went into the, the Michael Phelps year. And, you know, and again, just backtracking to 2008 in general, you have to remember, you know, 2007 was the beginning of, of the, the collapse of the economy. 2008, we, we were struggling along. Um, you know, it, I think by the end of it, it was really when we probably got to the peak of uh, the difficulties in, you know, everything in the real estate market, the loss of jobs. So, you know, we were kind of sputtering along at that point, but, you know, thankfully life went on, the sport went on and, uh, 
you know, we got through that and, and, and the subsequent years, which, you know, again, could, could be a good lesson for, for today. Yeah, absolutely. It, it feels like we were, yeah, I know it did not feel like that in the time, but in retrospect, we, we were very resilient in, uh, in overcoming those obstacles. Sure. Sporting wise, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, World Series champions over the Tampa Bay Rays, Celtics, NBA champions over the LA Lakers. I remember that one. I remember KG and anything's possible. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, and, and back to the, the, the Phillies, Tampa Bay. If you remember, Tampa opened the season as a huge, huge underdog. I mean, they were not expected to challenge, especially in a division that had the Yankees and the Red Sox. And I remember some sport books had them at 200 to 1. Um, and I even I, I know a, f- a friend who had a ticket. I think he had twenty bucks on them at a hundred to one later in the year, and um, you know th- that would have been a, a certainly a seven figure loss for the books had uh, Tampa pulled that out. But uh, the Phillies obviously swooped in there and saved them quite a bit of money. <laughs> a lot of upsets this year because the Super Bowl was probably arguably the biggest upset in Super Bowl history. The, this is the year that the Patriots came in undefeated. Sure. Uh, two touchdown favorites, I think, in, in, uh, in, in most betting circles over the New York Giants. And then obviously we know now in retrospect that uh, it was the Eli Manning and David Tyree show, right? The, this was the year of the helmet catch sure. and the, uh, the, the unthinkable, unpredicted uh, upset for the New York Giants in the Super Bowl. Yeah, I have a pretty big uh, New York Giants fan here here in the house, uh, Mrs. McKenna, growing up in New Jersey, and uh, that that was a big moment in her life. Um, I may uh, have owed her father a couple dollars at the end of that game, <laughs> but, but but yeah, entertaining. They probably game. thought you had a great bet. Oh, it was you know he didn't even want the points. He he being yeah no I I had that cashed long long before they started playing. So uh, th- there's a lesson there as well. Uh, in the in the NHL, uh, Red Wings over the Pittsburgh Penguins. The uh, Nick Saban's uh, college football championship at LSU in 2008. Tiger Woods won the U.S. Open. No surprise there. And Kansas was the uh, NCAA champion over Memphis in overtime. One of the one of the greatest final games in NCAA tournament history. I think looking back. Uh, I don't know. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off Kansas fans and saying that that one probably went the wrong way. Like that's, that's the Memphis team with Derrick Rose and Chris Douglas Roberts. Like, I, and they should have won the game. Like they kind of, they, sure. they, they kind of peed down their leg at the end. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't watch a whole lot of college sports in general, but uh, it's kind of hard not to get into the tournament. You know, when you that is that is probably the format that uh, maybe works best in all sports. That. Uh, you know, you have some of these huge upsets and uh, it just seems to uh, grasp the whole country for the better part of a month. No question. Uh, I thought this was an interesting uh, tidbit too from the season. Danica Patrick won her only, uh, the only IndyCar event of her career that season in Japan. Came at 2008, I know we kind of walked through this and not necessarily a bunch changed for us personally from 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, but what what do you remember from the year 2008? Well, I mean, for, first I want to touch on the Danica win, which, uh, you know, th- there, there's a lot of opinions one way or another about her and her career. Uh, certainly once she transitioned to NASCAR, had nowhere near the success that I think a lot of people hoped. But I think what it does is illustrates just how, um, 
I don't know if fortunate is the right word, but you know, you look at drag racing where we have had competitive women for decades and I mean, it's not a rarity anymore. You have them up and down the line, every class you've got women that, that excel when, you know, some of the sportsman racing uh, women are just, you know, they're, they're phenomenal drivers. And uh, you know, to me, that is part of the beauty of drag racing where, um, you know, those opportunities exist for everybody. And, and I think that's part of what makes us so strong. I think the only thing that, that we really haven't seen yet, uh, we've come close, but it is to have a woman win one of the really, really big, you know, million dollar bracket race. You know, Mia Tedesco has won a bunch. She's probably, at least in this generation, the most successful uh, woman bracket racer. But, you know, I think there's an opportunity there that would really move the needle to see somebody go in there and, uh, you know, and, and win one of the one of the majors, as we call them. Yeah, no, the table is set there. And while you, to your point, I don't know that there has been like one signature victory from the female contingent in the in big dollar bracket racing or, or perhaps sports and racing in general, but I think it would surprise no one at this point. Like there are several capable, Mia, probably to your point at the top of the list. Yeah. So personal recollections from, uh, from 2008, what was, what was going on in your world? Um, the, the, well, again, taking advantage of, of a depressed market, uh, that was a year that uh, Joe and I took the leap and bought our house in California, which, you know, was a big thing. It, um, you know, I mean, I knew years earlier when I moved to California, you, you looked at the, the cost of real estate and thought, this is crazy. We'll never be able to do this. But, you know, we saved and we saved and then eventually, you know, the market came to us and uh, we ended up buying a house and d didn't realize at the time we'd only be in it about five years and then moved to Indy. But, um, but again, it was a positive development. And, you know, other than that, obviously still, still doing the national dragster thing, probably went to yeah, 16 or so uh, national events. Um, just same old. Yeah. Similar here. The 2008 for me was actually the year that we, um, we launched this is bracketracing.com, which seems insane to me to think that it was over 12 years ago now. Um, and it, it just kind of grew from it, at that point, we were probably three years into um, doing some live driving schools. So that's something that'll credit. I just, I just saw that Blake was on here. So uh, Blake Allen kind of set the, set the fire under me to do that. The first time I've told that story several times. Um, host one at Mocan Dragway in 2005, I believe. And then uh, got a, realized I really enjoyed doing it. Got a following for that. Probably did four to six live schools a year for a couple of years there. And again, the market seemed strong. I felt mm -hmm. like we were having an impact and, and just kind of began to look at, okay, well, how can we how can we scale this? How can we reach a broader market without sure. having to spend every week on the road traveling to various parts of the country to host, you know, specific in-person live events? And so that was the website idea, which has obviously taken on a, a myriad yeah. of iterations since and, and grown and, and I think gotten much better. Um, but, uh, but that was the start of it 12 years ago, which seems crazy. And um, 2008 was the, the beginning for me of kind of the the transition from exclusively big dollar bracket racing to more um index based events uh, at this time it was all pretty much all ihra for me mm -hmm. and we'll get into that a little bit more later like at this moment in time 
IHRA had a very palatable program for the sports and racers. Sure. Very racer friendly. Um, there was there was financial gain to it. There was a lot of reasons to go do it, and I kind of latched onto that. And perhaps some of it was was looking for a, a new challenge. Some of it was uh, finding a, a spot that I thought that I could I could benefit financially, right? Because um, you know, obviously at that point, essentially it's still dependent on, on race winnings to make a living. And um, I don't know, I'll, I'll get into the IHRA stuff later, but those, I look back on really that season at that time as some of the, the most enjoyable times of my life and some of the best memories. So I'll get back into that because it was a lot of fun. It was very short-lived for, for a lot of good reasons, but, right. uh, but it was a lot of fun in the moment for sure. Well, I'm, um, guessing, I'm guessing now that to that point, the travel uh, probably a little more appealing to not have to chase things all over the country. That wasn't the way I went about it. No, <laughs> you're right. It should have been. But I, uh, I have a tendency when I latch on to things, I, I go all in. So I was everywhere, all IHRA mm. all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more as we go. But sure, it, uh, like I say, interesting time looking back. But and you know, and at that time, a lot of the the marquee names in sports and racing were running the IHRA series. Like it was, I feel like the heyday for that deal was more in the beta beta error bader era right. um but in my time kind of behind the wheel that probably 2006 to maybe 2009 or 10 um like it it it, it really kind of grew a life of its own and probably looking back had a lot of potential that ended up kind of being untapped but sure. it was it was a neat atmosphere in the moment for sure and i guess you also have to remember 2008 was the first year that norwalk was a full-time nhra track so so losing their flagship Probably, yeah. you know, was the beginning of the end as far as the, the IHRA that you knew. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. We touched on that a little bit last week is I don't even obviously it felt like a big thing at the time, but I don't think anyone could have necessarily seen the handwriting on the wall that now seems so obvious that, yeah, like that's kind of the, the peak and, and, and ultimately downturn. Sure. Um, all right, let's flip it over to the NHRA professional ranks, and I'll throw it to you. Uh, we had some big stories out of the pro ranks, some, some good news, some really sad news. I don't know where you want to start. Uh, well, I, I mean, I hate to, to get this, but yes, you know, coming off 2007, a year that we lost Eric Medlin and Wally Parks, uh, unfortunately, things did not necessarily turn around. Early in the year, Doug Herbert lost his two sons in, in an accident, you know, a highway accident. You know, that was tragic. Uh, later on, uh, you know, the, the big thing in Englishtown, we lost Scott Coletta. Um, you know, that was also obviously extremely tragic. And that was what came out of that was thousand foot racing two events later. And of course, we're still to that point um, as far as the nitro classes. And, you know, I know there's a lot of opinions on both sides. Uh, there's people that would like to see us go back. I think there's even, you know, a move to maybe try some quarter mile racing with some different rules. We'll, we'll see. Given the current environment, I don't know where we were at on that. Um, but yeah, that, that was, a, you know, sort of a theme. But, but then, you know, you, you looking on a more positive note, uh, you know, we had your, your pro champions were Tony Schumacher, um, which we'll get to here in a second. Cruz Pedregon won in Funny Car, Jed Coughlin. Uh, one, uh, I believe that would have been his third uh, pro stock championship. And then Eddie Craywick won the bike championship. Uh, interesting thing about Tony Schumacher, I will say it hands down. I think that was the most dominant season ever 
for any top field racer. And, and I know two years ago, you know, Steve Torrance ran the table in the countdown, but that year, Schumacher, 18 finals, 15 wins. His round record was 76 and nine. Did not lose first round all year. Uh, and of his nine losses, uh, four of them were by small hole shot. Twice he smoked the tires. And I think he won uh, nine of the final 10 races to just put a nice bow on the thing. So kind of hard to argue against that, that kind of dominance. And of course, that was Alan Johnson and the Army team at the time. Yeah, and that's coming off of the run. Right? Yes. That, that closes Correct. the 2007 season. So you've got that catalyst for momentum. And yeah, just to your point, I just I just got the calculator out. 76 and nine, that's an 89, 89.4% round win percentage in, in top fuel. That's insane. Yeah. And, and really, you know, if, if you look at, you know, if you want to be nitpicky and say, wow, he, you know, he lost four times on hole shots, that, that, that means Alan Johnson's record you know, was even, was, was even more dominant, right? It, it would have been, you know, 80 and five, if, if you basically looking at crew chief numbers, um, you know, that's, that's unprecedented. You may never see that again, ever, uh, you know, Cruz Pedregon's year, uh, a little different. Um, he was sixth place halfway through the countdown. And then he goes on a tear, wins the final three races to win his second championship. Um, uh, first as a team owner, uh, and that year, a lot of people probably don't remember, Tim Wilkerson was the guy who uh, basically gave Cruz the, the biggest fight. Uh, he won six races, finished second. Uh, you know, in moving to pro stock, uh, Jag pretty much caught fire towards the end of the year. Uh, he led the points at the last five races. Uh, he was good all year, but, but really shined uh, towards the latter stages of the countdown. Uh, and then we also had a very interesting situation in pro stock motorcycle where Eddie Krawick went an entire year, did not win a race. In fact, to that point, he had not won any races. It was his second year. The Harley team um, gets down to the end. He ends up winning the championship by five points over Chris Rivas. So it's one of only two times that we've had uh, a, a, champ, a pro championship won by somebody who did not win an event. Um, I was going to ask you, because it doesn't feel like that could be a common thing twice in history. Yeah, I think it was in 1978, Rob Bruins won the Top Field Championship. And, of course, that was back when I think there was maybe eight, ten events. So you had fewer opportunities. You know, Eddie Craywick did that in a 16-race um, season. And just, you know, he got to a lot of finals. He was good, but just couldn't, couldn't find the magic uh, at that point. But, you know, obviously scored enough points to get it done and – uh, has obviously since gone on to win nearly 50 races. So uh, that, that was obviously just a, a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, it's wild to think that you would have the consistent performance to accumulate more points than the entire field. And you would think he would just stumble into a victory at some point. You know, I mean, obviously he's consistently putting himself in the semis of the finals. Mm -hmm. you, you would think, but, you know, you know he, he had a teammate that was dominant. You know, Andrew was running well. Matt Hines had a, or I'm sorry, Matt Smith had a really good year that year. And, and there were a few other guys like Chris Rivas, Chip Ellis. You know, th there were some, uh, some good, uh, you know, there were some, some pretty good uh, teams out there then. So, Yeah, I mean, I know that that's happened. I, mean, I don't expect you to have the data on the sportsman side of it, and it even seems rare there, but that's so much more spread out, thousands of competitors over seven mm -hmm. divisions, and, and if you were to string together, say, I don't know, four or five runner-ups or six or seven, you know, 
fifth round or better is you'd have a really good shot. You I mean, ultimately that's where the average comes in. Typically somebody ends up winning two, three, four events and stretching things out. But I know it's, I want to say that one of Ed Richardson's championships, I know he didn't win a national event, but I'm thinking he might not have won a race. I just wonder, I would think that that's more common in the sportsman categories, but still relatively rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. You know, I know we went over it last week when Darren Smith won the Superstock Championship. He did not win a national event, has still not won one, but but he had obviously a very solid year at point speeds. I think he won three th- three in a row out there in Division Seven, and that that kind of kickstarted his campaign. Um, it's actually pretty good trivia to see how many guys would have won a championship without winning any race. It, it, it's probably a very small number. It'd probably be very easy to track who, but um, yeah, that's a uh, it's an interesting, interesting thought. It'd be a fun one to look up. Speaking of, of those little mini assignments that I've given you in the past, did you ever reach out to Ron Caps about Deck and Baysmore? I, I, I did not. Um, it totally slipped my mind, but you know what? I, I will make a note of that, and uh, I am going to text him as, as soon as we're done. Um, the question was, I think it was back from 2006, if I'm not mistaken, but, but Caps got a $10,000 fine for uh, going into Whit Baysmore's pit area and basically leveling him right decking him yeah my I, question, I, 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 it was a one on one shot deal but uh yeah he, he got all of it apparently so my question was you know years later does caps regret that or does he look back on it as the best ten thousand dollars he ever spent curious yeah. to know inquiring minds want to know yeah and, and he will probably give us an honest answer so <laughs> I, I will endeavor to get that uh, get that information to us for next week <laughs> Uh, any other news and notes from the professional ranks 2008 uh, yeah, yeah we, we had you know a, a few interesting things on the national event level uh, obviously norwalk came on board had a very successful first event uh that was also the year that zmax dragway was built in charlotte and, and, and that place was built in six months you know i remember it was uh, whatever it was march or so they started turning dirt and you thought are we really going to have an event here in september and uh sure enough they made it happen they built one of the nicest drag strips in the world, uh, probably a favorite of many people. Um, you know, they did the whole four lane thing, which kind of left a lot of people scratching their heads, but uh, obviously they've made it work. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it remains kind of a crown jewel of uh, the NHRA tour. Uh, and, you know, earlier we talked about um, the army team and the success that Tony Schumacher had late in the year, Alan Johnson announced his, intention to leave you know he had always wanted to run his own team when he got the funding from the Allen Abbey group he was able to make that happen so that that, that was a, a pretty big uh, pretty big divorce um, you know and then I also wanted to go back and touch a little bit on on the Scott Kalita incident not not so much the the accident that took his life but you know I, my personal thing I didn't deal with Scott a lot um, you know occasionally I would cover the nitro classes but over the years we really didn't have that many conversations, but the event before English Town, he uh, he got to the final. He was runner-up, I think, to Tony Pedregon in Chicago, and I just happened to be at the uh, at the top end when he came around the corner. And you know, he jumped out of the car, obviously disappointed. I wasn't really sure whether to approach him or not, but he kind of saw me and sort of nodded, like come over. And you know, I uh, trying to think of something. The, the right thing to say. And I you know, you said, you're really, it seems like you got this car just about figured out. You really, and, and he was actually, you know, he smiled. He was, uh, he says, yeah, he says, we're, we're making a lot of headway. He says, I really think we're, we're moving in the right direction. But the, the Clear team at that time really didn't have a handle on their funny car program. 
but it, it seemed like they were starting to turn the corner. And, you know, th that was just, that was my recollection of the last conversation I had with him. And, you know, it, it was nice to see him, even though he'd lost in, in a good mood. And, you know, if you're going to lose somebody, maybe, you know, at least that's your memory of a guy who, you know, w was generally making the best of things. I feel like you're in such a, an interesting position as a reporter because you get such an insight to the human element, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I guess if, I don't want to make the professionals along the, the Mellow Yellow Tour, like it's, it's, they're not LeBron James or Tom Brady, I guess, right? That's not that level of fame. Sure. But for those of us that follow the sport, we still kind of have them on this elevated pedestal. And you tend to look at whether it's an athlete or performer uh, just for what they do and not necessarily the, the, the person underneath the helmet. You get to see that side. I think that's got to be, it's got to be a different perspective that's probably very, very interesting. It is, and I'm very grateful for what I do and for what drag racing people in general are because you don't, I mean, there's some big egos out there, but it's not, like, I could not imagine being a reporter that covered basketball, pro football, uh, even NASCAR to a degree. Like, like we talked about Ron Caps. I'm going to text Ron Caps. He'll probably get back to me day. I don't have to go through his people, right? I don't have to go through three layers of PR just to talk to him. Um you know, I mean, I've, and I've always wondered if, if you're a writer, a beat writer, and you do your job correctly, and you call a professional athlete out on whatever it is, whether it's personal off the field behavior or their performance on the court, on the field, you, you still have to deal with those guys every day. And I always wonder what it's like to walk into a locker room after you've written some really harsh criticism. Um, you know, I mean, we're seeing this when you watch this, you know, this Bulls documentary that's on, that's everybody, you know, it's fantastic stuff. And it gives you some insight, especially a guy like Michael Jordan, you know, and, and if you write honestly and, you know, it, it seemed like Michael was fine with that. It's the people who just make things up, just throw some crap on the wall to see what sticks. That's what gets under people's skin. But, you know, by and large, drag racing people are, are isolated from that. You know, you really don't have a whole lot of, them being called out, if you know what I mean. One other thing I want to circle back on before we move on to the sportsman ranks, the the announcement that Alan Johnson was was leaving Schumacher going to Alan Abbey. Mm -hmm. You had said, you know, that you, it was apparent to you deep down that AJ wanted to, to run his own team. So maybe this wasn't as big a shock within that inner circle as it was to those of us outside, because you just see this dominating figure in all of a sudden it's, it's blown up. Yeah, that, that's, I, I think that's a fair point. Uh, you know, I don't know that, I guess we all knew that it would happen at some point. We just didn't know right then and there that that was going to happen. Um, you know, and, and then you looked at, you know, at this team that they, they were so dominant, you, you know, you, you wonder why, why would you, why would you want to give that up? But then you also look at a lot of greatness in, in all aspects of life and sport the people who are willing to step out of a comfort zone and do something else are, are generally the ones that reap the greatest rewards. And, you know, that was certainly the case with Alan Johnson because he made, you know, he made the Alan Abbey team where he continued to win championships. Uh, you know, even moving on now, the drivers he's working with now, they win championships. You know, he had a hand in the success of Steve Torrance. You know, you look at what he's done with Mike Salinas, you know, turn, turn, turn him into a, 
two-time national event winner at this point. So, um, yeah, I, I guess there's something to be said for kind of living life on your own terms and, and taking chances from time to time. I remember there feeling like there was a lot of speculation around the Alan Abbey deal that it just, and maybe this is because too, I, I saw in one of the notes earlier, like this was the year that the Torco thing with Evan Knoll folded, right? right? And that was one that always seemed like, okay, this, where did this come from? This seems too good to be true. It feels mm -hmm. like a, a house of cards, so to speak. I think there was a lot of that sentiment around Alan Abbey because we just didn't understand like, who are these people? Where's the money coming from? It was so new to have that type of influence in our sport sure. and i guess ultimately like it did kind of fold but it lasted a long time and had a ton of success it did but, but by then i think um you know shake Khaled was pretty well ingrained in pro mod people had seen what they'd done they'd been racing you know he'd been bringing people over to the middle east for for several years so so people had seen his operation uh, i think they, they knew that the, that the wealth was genuine and real and you know, some of the numbers that they were never made public, but some of the numbers that were reported was that, you know, that was a team that had all the funding it could ever want. And then some, um, which, you know, obviously that would be the type of thing that appeals to Alan to have essentially an unlimited budget to do the things you want to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was very legit. And, 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 you know, another thing that's around that time was when NHRA introduced the rule that limited a professional team to four entries. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think that the threat of someone with that kind of wealth saying, well, I'll just show up with 16 cars. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not likely, but I think you'd at least have to acknowledge the possibility. And, and I think that probably went into a, some of the thinking of, of all right, let, let's, let's put a cap on this before it gets out of hand. Yeah, it's fascinating to look back on. And it sounds like those of you in the know had a little bit more insight to what this was when it happened. It just seemed like such a blindsided deal for you know the average fan like me at the time um, coming into it. I, I, I just know that Alan uh, told us a story that uh, he flew to London for his first meeting with Khaled. And uh, when Khaled pulled up in his uh, Bugatti Varian, he, he pretty much knew that, that he was legit and that they would probably leave with a deal. <laughs> Uh, it's gonna be so cool to be able to pull back the curtain on that stuff. Um, yeah. All right, let's uh, let's let's turn the page just a little bit and focus on the sports and ranks within NHRA in Top Alcohol Dragster and Top Alcohol Funny Car. It was more of the same. Uh, this is what we had it talked was. a little bit about last week. We were in the midst of the reign of Bill Reichert and Frank Manzo, respectively, in Top Alcohol Dragster and Top Alcohol Funny Car. Reichert's championship in 2008 was his third consecutive of what would be five straight. For Manzo, mm -hmm. it was the third consecutive of what would be eight straight national championships. Sure. Mm -hmm. So no new news there. Um, dominant seasons, respectively, and another dominant season in competition eliminator. This one made our shortlist for most uh, impressive sportsman performances of all time. This was Dan Fletcher's 2008 competition eliminator campaign. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, you know, Dan scored 708 points, uh, which, you know, as, as we've discussed in prior shows, any total over 700 is, is really impressive. To do it in comp eliminator where you don't have the 105 point races, uh, you know, you're pretty much limited to, to 95, even at the well-attended events. Um, that that is a massive massive score that year. Dan had six wins, three of which came in comp. Um, 
so yeah, it, it, I believe he pretty handily won that title. Of course, that was in Rick Brown's car out the West Coast. And I believe that was one of the years they hauled that car east a bit. Uh, I think Dan maybe brought it back to the, um, you know, in his trailer at the East Coast. So they, they got a good bit of play. And, and I think that was one of the few years that he um, he really pursued a championship. You know, as we talked, he always wanted to win this championship in a second class just so he would never have to attend a points meet again if he didn't care to. Uh, but that was a very impressive performance. Uh, if you want to go to Superstock, uh, Ricky Decker, Division Three, uh, held off Jimmy DeFrank by 12 points to win. Uh, Lee Zane was your stock champion. An another very impressive performance. I believe he was in the high 600s in points. Um, and then how about his second national championship? That was his second, also second championship back-to-back -back for Sean Langdon. Uh, who uh, he he won it by 11 points over uh, Steve Cohen and Gary Stinnett, who tied for second place. So th th that's a, a pretty monumental feat there. And finally, uh, Brian Forrester, a very tightly contested battle for Supergas. The top four in that class, uh, all separated by just 20 points. So so that one came down down to the wire as well. Yeah, I remember that that Forrester championship season well. And for some reason, I have it built up in my head now as he was dominant. You know what I mean? But as you yeah. did, and obviously he was, he won the national championship. But now looking back, four racers right down to the wire within a couple of rounds. Mm -hmm. um, no uh, no national event doubles in 2008? No, no. There, there was how much more prevalent that's become. It, it is, but I, I think now... Uh, I think more racers these days are inclined to bring two cars and race them. Just right, the economics of doing so just makes far more sense. The abundance of stacker trailers and a way to efficiently haul two cars to a track. I, I just think if, you know, if you're going to do this and you have the means, um, you're, you're almost just giving away too much of an edge to not have two cars. Although there's people who would disagree. You know, Dan Fletcher has argued for years that it, it's not the be all end all that, that, you know, and you, you can obviously speak to this, the difficulty in running two cars, especially when you're either trying to do it by yourself or you have a very small crew, just, just a family. So there, there's, there's obviously two sides to that coin. Yeah, I agree. There is some give and take just in terms of, I think it's a little bit easier to focus specifically on one car. Um, not so much, usually at NHRA national events, so spread out, it's not that big a deal, but when you get in both cars late, like there's, there's a lot going on there. So I see that side of the argument, but with that said, I mean, look at Dan, like he's, he still takes two everywhere he goes. Like just to your point from a, from a purely financial standpoint, if you're going to make the investment to be at the events, it makes decent financial sense to have two shots. Sure. And obviously more racers have seen that, which is the, the main catalyst for seeing more doubles in, in recent years. There's, there's certainly more cars with more drivers with two entries today than there were in 2008 and more than, than there were in 1998. Yeah, no, there, there was a time when it was just Dan and a handful of other guys who did it. Uh, and, and I think that's now why, yes, you, you typically can see three or four of them in a year now. Just, I think that's just the, the numbers game playing out that, um, there's more of them. You know, a couple other notes we had from uh, the um, the 2008 season of Sportsman, uh, a three-peat for the Division One crew at the Jags All-Stars. Um, I also re remember this. It was very funny. You know, our old buddy Jim Harrington, he won Bristol uh, driving a car that uh, could not run the index. He qualified 49th out of 49, uh, was about two three hundredths over, and 
basically they had to run that car uh, like they were in class eliminations the whole time. Every every round, ice down the intake, you know, drain oil. They, they just looked for ways. And, you know, he, I remember he got a fleet of red lights against him, including the final round. It was one of those things where he, on a really good run, he might be a hundredth or two under, but was, was holding nothing. And, uh, you know, somehow miraculously pulled it off. I'm so glad you brought that up. I vaguely remember that. I think I was there. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I, because I just, or maybe Harry has told, had told the story in a way that made me feel like I was there, yes. you know, cause he had a way of doing that. So he certainly did. Um, walking through that, like that's, um, that's good stuff. I remember the year that, that we really went after stock eliminator at, uh, at Norwalk, I ran our car in, in double a, which we could barely run the index in double a, like we couldn't get down to, to minimum this and that. So I, I think, but I could run like two tenths under the index. It wasn't mm-hmm. as if, yeah, I felt like I was at a competitive disadvantage, but I remember waking up on Sunday morning, you know, yeah, it's warmer. And I was just kind of going through my maintenance. I might've still had both cars in. I turned the weather station on like two hours before we're set to run. And I do the quick math and I'm like, Oh, I mean, it's like 1200 slower, I think than the day prior. And so I'm like, that can't be right. I ride over to Beyondo's trailer. I'm like, Pete, how, how slow you think it is roughly? He's like, ah, you know, whatever he said, 1214. I'm like, I don't think I can run the index. So yeah, I think I, I think I ditched like two quarts of oil and an alternator belt or something for the semis, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, no, not no, an no. optimal situation. No, no. And I, and I remember Jim saying, you know, that they they get down to the semis, you know, and they're trying to get the thing cool and what can we do? You know, and he was a big guy. So the car was overweight. They couldn't make weight anyway. And one of his guys either, suggested or started to actually take the passenger seat out said what are you doing said well let's just take the seat out said no you can't do that this is super stock you gotta have it right um so so yeah the the crazy things that people do to try to um you know desperate uh, times call for desperate measures (laughs) the very beginnings of my uh my nhra career i drove a a stock eliminator car when i was like 16 17 that belonged to jeremy heffler and when jeff was winning his national Mm -hmm. championships in fact the year that i ran i believe was the year that he won the national championships and i'm out and jeff a little bit here but it's i think we're well past the statute of limitations right so i had a heads up run in this in this old camaro that would barely run the index and, uh, and Jeff says like, hey, we got to try, right? We got to throw the kitchen sink at it. So we drain the oil and ice it and this and that and the other. And, and uh, normally like you could turn the alternator off or something like that. Like we just took the belt off, which I'm pretty sure is illegal, right? And, mm-hmm. and as I'm getting in the car to go to the staging lanes, Jeff takes the alternator belt and puts it under the seat. And I'm like, what, what, why there? And he's like, listen, man, I don't think there's any prayer that you're going to win. <laughs> But if by chance your wind light comes on, roll down the window past the finish line and chuck that out. That way nobody asks any questions. <laughs> hey, we, we've seen it. And, and, and funny, since, since we're telling Jim Harrington stories, um, very relative to, to your point, uh, in 1985, Jim showed up in Gainesville with a Barracuda, won the Gator Nationals in stock, uh, and then went realized that this was a fun thing. So he went to the next national event in Atlanta and – he got torn down. I had no, had no idea. I had, had never been through a teardown. Um, so the tech guy basically tells him, look, take the intake off. I, we want to look at the carburetor. Well, he pulled that off and I, and I guess sat around for about an hour before they did. Well, the tech guy came over and noticed that he had two carburetor gaskets and, and he got pitched from the event. And, and, you know, he couldn't, he was incredulous, could not believe that number one, that was a rule and, and that, 
would that be a flagrant enough offense to, to be thrown out? And, and I remember him saying, I sat there for an hour or more just looking at the intake there. I could have taken the extra gasket, flung it in the trash. No one would ever have been the wiser. He, he just didn't know, you know, and that's, you know, for one of the things, I guess, if you're going to be a class racer, yeah, pro- probably a little wise to at least brush up on the rule book or have somebody with you that, uh, that, that knows those things. I can speak to that from personal experience as well as someone that has been disqualified from a, from a stock limit international event for breaking the rules, admittedly, but yeah. for an infraction that I, I did not think warranted disqualification. But yeah. again, same mindset as, as Harry, like, come on, man, right, <laughs> we right. just come from more of a bracket racing mentality, which is a, is a different world. <laughs> yeah. And then, and, and, I mean, and obviously there, there's not a performance, you know, not, not probably not a hundredth to be gained in having a spare gasket on there. Uh, I wanted to touch briefly on the IHRA tour from 2008, unless there was anything uh, else from the NHRA sports and ranks that you wanted to bring up, Kevin, I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, I, I think, uh, I think we covered uh, all, all the fun stuff and uh, let's, uh, let's move on. All right. So IHRA 2008, I'm, I'm so heartbroken that we touched on this last week. I can't really find any record of, I could find a vid- individual events from 2008. Honestly, I, I didn't have the ambition to go through all of that. So I don't have a list of the champions, which again, kind of breaks my heart because I have kind of romanticized this time because that's that's was my focus in 2008. So I can tell you a little bit about what I remember, what stood out to me. Obviously, I will leave some names out, some champions out, and I don't mean to, to, to necessarily exclude anyone. We just can't find the information. There was, I explained last week, there was a website crash on IHRA.com and it's just really, really difficult to dig up some of the archives around this time, uh, which is unfortunate. So for me, 2008, like we transitioned from the focus on the drag race results bracket tour the year prior um, to like more class racing. And, and part of this was going in cahoots with my good friend, Brian Robinson and I say we, this was Brian's car, but we, we built a uh, 60 mi- 69 model Nova to run in stock eliminator. I had my dragster, I had my Vega, and somewhere along the way, I concocted this plan to run the IHRA tour and essentially commit to going to an IHRA event basically every weekend and say on the first weekend of the month, this isn't exactly the way that it would fall, but I would run quick rod the 890 category Mm -hmm. in my dragster and i would run my vega in hot rod the 1090 class and then i would come home and ditch the vega and load up the stalker and go to the next race where i would run top dragster in my dragster and stock eliminator in the nova and actually made a full enough schedule now it's enough of a commitment to to chase you know i try it was similar in layout to the nhra tour other than all the divisionals were doubles so that made it easier you know it was Mm -hmm. basically four weekends to make your eight points meets. Um, it's hard enough to commit to doing that in two categories. I did it in four. Like I basically went to an IHRA event every weekend and just swapped cars and or classes mm-hmm. to make enough national events and divisionals to chase points in all four. I think I'm the only person crazy enough to have done that like in history, as far as I know. And I actually thought I would have had the best chance coming into the year in 1090 in my Vega and I couldn't do anything right. <laughs> But I actually made a run in all of it. I didn't end up winning a championship, but I finished the year second in stock to Nick Folk. And I remember Nick winning that world championship. I finished fourth in top dragster. Uh, Scotty Richardson won the championship in TD that year. And I finished fourth in quick rod. 
um, which Brett Nesbitt won that championship. The only other champions I remember uh, were Jason Lynch. That was the year that he won top sportsman. I'm 99% sure. But if those are the four that you remember, like what I spoke to earlier, some of the biggest names in sports and drag racing were sure. in the IHRA tour at that time, Nick Folt, Brett Nesbitt, Scotty Richardson, Jason Lynch. And then you throw in the usual sus suspects of Steve Furr, Scotty Stillings, Anthony Bertozzi. Like it was a very, uh, Harrington was at a lot of those races. Yeah. I ran Fletcher in one of the, one of the stock eliminator finals. Um, it just goes back to those times of a being surrounded by, you know, that class of racers and just, I don't know, the atmosphere was so much fun back then, you know, and it, I don't, it, whatever IHRA did to, to, uh, to make that conducive or whether it was that group of people, I just have so many good memories and good times from that. And uh, like I say, my season, at, at one point, I'm sure that I had visions of winning three championships that, that didn't come to fruition, even for one. Right. Um, but I, I did get voted the, the IHRA Sportsman Driver of the Year, and I'll always kind of immortalize that season of A, like just how crazy and, and stupid the whole plan was to try to, you know, how ambitious that was to actually go to that many races and, and compete, but to actually, you know, have some pretty significant level of success across such a variety of classes. It was just a lot of fun. I remember there was, because they used to do stuff where you'd have like a if it wasn't a double divisional, there was a few races where you'd have like divisional Friday, divisional Saturday, and then a sportsman national event Sunday. Right, right. And I remember winning 890, like the second day of the divisional and thrashing back to the pits to take the throttle stop off and put the nitrous bottle on to make my one time trial and top dragster <laughs> for the national event. You know I mean? It was just stuff that you just look back and go, why? But that, that's, it. that was how it worked. So. Well, and then I think those events, right. You, you may not have had huge car counts, but no, right. the but the quality of, of, of the drivers you had was as good as anywhere. I mean, I, I saw you know your, your list of champions that you remember. I'm going to assume that Kenny Underwood was in the mix somewhere. He may well have been the reason why you didn't win the 1090 championship. I think and, he got in the way once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, so, so so yeah, and and it's also I think it's interesting. You could probably speak to this what it does both for your confidence and your level of experience when those are the guys you are racing week after week after week, uh, it, it's got to either make you good or make you quit. Right. Yeah, no. And that's, that is the memory of that. We, regardless of the class, I think most of the division races, it seems like you'd go five rounds to win. Like there'd be 20 cars to yeah. maybe 40 would be a big one. But mm -hmm. to your point, like every other round you're racing somebody that you read about, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was a, a big name. So it was, heightened competition and just that series had a lot going for it at that time you know i mean you would make the double divisionals were appealing it was shorter rounds say than nhra events of the time or right. the big dollar bracket race of the time with solid purses like the contingency program was strong i remember i don't know exactly but it seems like you could win four grand ish for winning a points meet you know for going sure. five rounds yeah. and that was in the regular classes and top sportsman and top dragster the contingencies were doubled i think you could get like sixty five hundred seven thousand bucks for winning a five round top dragster race you know i mean there was there was decent money there plus they had all of the um the uh championship uh programs or add-on programs like the they had the all-stars race at the time they used to do the uh, the Holly shootouts and the Mosier Axelmania, like there, you could just by basically going to every event, you were entered in these other bonus things that brought right. more notoriety, more recognition and potentially more money. Like they had a really good thing going for a, a pretty brief period of time looking back, but I do remember it being a lot of fun in the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I don't know, you mentioned double headers and, and it really seems like 
whether by necessity or just that, you know, I, I think you're going to see, or you have seen NHRA trend more towards that. I mean, obviously you and I have in the past discussed what the Topeka double divisional has become just a massive event, a 700 car race, uh, nine, you know, eight, eight rounds to win super comp. Uh, you know, I, I think that just makes sense to see more of that e either, either a double divisional or piggyback it with the national event where, you know, anything you can do to reduce costs, get people in there, <clears throat> you know, to me, it makes all the sense in the world. If you're going to tow to a Gainesville or anywhere to, to, to be there, to have two shots, whether it's the same weekend or back-to-back -back weekends, um, you know, I, I do think that has been the trend and will continue to be going forward. It does. It, it hits a point of diminishing return, or it can. The reason that that works so well for IHRA in that time was like their massive division event had 300 cars. You know, right. and it wasn't the logistics of running because essentially, my recollection is we would basically run two races in two days, and yeah. the the double. NHRA divisionals that I've been to, with the exception of, of Atlanta, the couple of times that I went to Atlanta, it was never packed, but Topeka, Phoenix, it seems like there's one more that I'm leaving out, but the doubles that I've been to, where every racer thought the exact same way, like, hey, this makes a ton of sense, because it's half the, the travel cost to make right. races, which is, it's true, but the the flip side of that is that 600, 700 racers are thinking the same thing and converge on this, and now right. you've got a six or 700 car event where you're trying to pack two races into three or four days sure. and it just becomes really long days without any window for anything to go wrong you know right, so right. there's there's give and take to all of it mm -hmm. all right on the bracket side from 2008 we touched on this a little bit last week uh 2007 was the inaugural world footbrake challenge in bristol where surprise surprise scotty richardson won the fifty thousand dollar to win main event 2008 brought the second WFC and only the, the second time that they got away from the $50,000 model after this, obviously this year, now, you know, 12 years later, Jed and Steve are putting on a hundred thousand dollar to win guaranteed foot break race Labor Day at Bristol. Um, but to this point, the, the purse has never gotten back to 50. The first two years, it was 50. The first two years, the winner was Scotty Richardson. He won in 2007. He came back, backed that up with a win in 2008. If memory serves, he defeated Jacob Rutledge in the final of the second annual uh, World Footbreak Challenge. That, 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 that's insane. Uh, I, you know, and I understand talented, successful racers will always find a way to get it done. But, but to, to just ha have that level of dominance year after year after year is just amazing. To, to not be phased by the amount of money you're racing for, you know, I, I mean, I always wondered if, if I were ever in a big money final, uh, how I would fare. Pr probably, I'm, I'm guessing the first one, not well, right? I mean, it's probably very easy to get overwhelmed if, if you start to let your mind wander and think about what you're racing for and, and how it might change your life or uh, that. But, um, uh, you know, hats off to the guys who can pull that off year after year. No, and, and it just, I mean, we, we touched on this last week, but it just speaks to, to Scotty's talent and domination over the years because i don't know about you kevin i know he's done it in everything and then former national champion mm -hmm. stock eliminator he's won plenty off the bottom quarter mile eighth mile dragsters door cars you name it like that if if it's got wheels that guy can do it but when i think of scotty richardson like i don't immediately think of his bottom ball prowess and here are two of i don't remember maybe i maybe there's been a 
I cannot think of a, of a bottom ball bracket race that's paid more than $50,000 to win. I can only think of two that paid yeah. 50. I'm probably missing some somewhere along the way, but he won uh, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it makes you wonder what the split would have been. You know, when you have that much talent, are, are you less inclined? You know, when you feel like no matter who you're racing in the final, you, you've got an edge, even if you feel you're, you know, 55 to 60%, are you less inclined to, to, to really make a, a huge split. That was the one area though, that I don't, I don't want to say Scotty, like never fully took advantage of. Like I just remember, and and probably because I set guys like him and, and Peter on such a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Like I remember thinking, and maybe even perhaps arguing with Scotty at, at times, because there was a, there was, there were times where we kind of ran together where I'm like, dude, why are you giving this money away? Like you are better than these people stop split, you know, because yeah, he was always very, in my mind, like generous with the, mm-hmm. the sure. split. I mean, obviously you go back in any racer's career and you can pinpoint times where, Hey, that was a no split final, or there was some kind of animosity or bad blood or some reason that that race didn't get cut up. But by and large, Large, he was always willing to do that and and to the point that i would i would sit back and say just like you are like dude do you, everybody here realizes that you're going to beat this guy like seven times out of ten or eight times out of ten like do you not realize that you know? yeah, yeah. but but at the same time i get the argument of hey this this racing thing is the sole source of income and we need to take that guaranteed money so that it's a you 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 kind of weigh and balance the two, but yeah, I always kind of but, felt the same. But way. If, if 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 you look at it strictly from a mathematical perspective, and you win somebody like Scotty that probably wins seventy percent of his finals, then it, it would be incorrect for you to ever take a dollar off the top. You, you just go ahead and and you know the, the few times you you're runner up, you you take your lumps. But um, but again, yeah, you, you know, game, right? Sure, but again, as as you mentioned, you know, good for somebody for for not being greedy for not. You know, I mean, it, those sort of things, if you're talking about the overall well-being of the sport, obviously it's better to spread some of the wealth around to have, you know, the more people who leave an event uh, with, with a positive outcome, uh, you know, the better off we all are. It gives the money to move on to the next one. So I, I guess we should be grateful more people don't, uh, you know, don't have that mentality of all or nothing. Could you imagine if Scotty had had somebody like Scotty, but let's just say Scotty put specifically had had that mentality in that day because in large part uh not of his own doing at all like mm-hmm. kind of wasn't the most like dude simply because he won way too much you know sure. what i mean like you could could you imagine if scotty just a won as much as he did and just never split people would hate that guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not not to really sidetrack the conversation but now that now that we have events that are paying uh, you know, a half million, you know, you've got a couple on the books here that are going to pay a guaranteed million. That is a little bit of a concern to me that somebody could do that. Because if you look at anybody who goes in there and says, I'm not splitting, I came here to win a million dollars, I'm going to win a million dollars. And if that's the case, the guys that basically live off the split, you get down to eight cars, four cars and, and, and walk away with the advertised purse you were going to be horribly disappointed. You know, you, you might have a situation where you have three, 400 racers there. One guy leaves happy and, you know, 299 of them leave extremely disappointed. Now, granted, I, I admit that's a bit of a long shot for that to happen, but I think you got to acknowledge the possibility that it could. No, and we saw that on a little bit lower level just a couple of years ago at the Million. I mean, the, the situation, I think Underwood was very... Um, justified in his decision. It, Unquestionably. 
the situation, if I remember correctly, was something like there's 14 cars left, which is the round that the million typically gets split. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no buy runs, obviously, at 14, but Kenny was sitting on the buy run. So if he wins at 14, he has the buy, he's in the semifinals, right? He yeah. would have the buy run at seven. And I, I mean, I think a lot of factors played into it. And I won't speak for Kenny here, but he had had just an unbelievable season. So I don't mm-hmm. feel like feel like he was in a better position to gamble than you know most would be at that time. But basically, he refused to split at 14. He won the round and, and got to four where they did make a, a deal. And you get both sides of it because I heard racers that got to 14 that would typically, that's the round you get ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 of the million. And they got, most of them made side deals. But depending on, you know, if you lost how far your opponent got basically after that, might have got $1,500, two grand. So they're saying, man, you know, like um, that, that type of performance would always have netted me five times right. as much money in the past. I just think like I I have I have to uh to really admire the stones of Kenny <laughs> to do it because yes it affects everyone but just think about him in that moment. I said that on the podcast at the time. That is a round where his opponent is obviously racing to get down to the quarterfinals of the million. Like it's a big round for everybody. But specifically for Kenny, you lose at 14, obviously no deal because you're the one that said no deal, right? So you'd assume <laughs> that there's no side deal among that round. So it's like the round money is whatever, 2000 bucks to lose there. If you win and get the buy round at seven, most likely everyone's going to split it four and take home. I don't remember what the numbers ended up being, but let's say $50,000. So you're going to stage one, one time, one round for 48 that grand, you know, whether or not your win light comes on, that's stones, man. And he, not only did he do it, he won it and then won the race. Like I just, I get, I, maybe I would have a different perspective if I was one of the guys that lost at 14, but I just look back at that and go, A, he's completely within his rights, and B, like, that's freaking awesome. You know? And do you also wonder, if you're someone that has raced for big money, you've been in a number of big money finals, you feel like you handle that pressure well, and, and maybe you're racing someone who, who doesn't and it might be visibly nervous, the, the more money you race for, the more heat you're putting on them. Right? I mean, I mean, if you have a final that's a hundred thousand to win and ten thousand runner-up, you know, it might not be the worst thing to remind your opponent that you're racing for ninety grand, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and let and let him take a good sweat out of that. I don't. I'm I'm kind of constantly amazed. Like it, it just seems rare that you really see people choke. You know what I mean? I, I, racers are, by and large, seem to be able to to compartmentalize. Now, there's a difference between choking and and putting your best foot forward. I uh, and, and it's and to your point, it's rare. Like how many? I say that you don't see choking. Like there's there's not too many racers that have been put in that situation. You know, like here's yeah. one round for forty grand, hundred grand, whatever the case may be. But that, to your point, is is the one thing that Jason Lynch has always said specifically about the million. Because we would we would talk, it seems like five years in a row, early in the million, and he's like, man, I just got to dodge these bullets. He says, they come out swinging. He said, but if, man, if I can get to about fifth round, they're all going to start realizing what we're racing for, and it's going to get easy. That's what he yeah. always says. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he, he's got, for the most part, uh, a, a very valid point. You know, and typically the final round of most of those, it, it gets chopped so close, they're racing for it, you know, two to five, maybe $10,000. If you've already banked, you know, if it's a hundred to win and, and 80 runner up 90, th- th- there's no pressure. No one, you should do your best, right? There's no reason to choke in that final because 100%. being runner up is not the worst thing in the world. But again, no, if- I found, 
I, I thought it was a paradoxical, like the, the year that I was in the, the final at Vegas, we ran the final round for 20 grand. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've ever staged in a single round. I can't think of a single round that had that much money on the line. And like, it was almost difficult to get up for because you know, worst case scenario, we're taking whatever the numbers were, $70,000, $80,000, like tw three times as much money as I'd ever left a racetrack with in my life. You know, I mean, it, it is, to your point, like there's not the pressure in that round isn't as immense as you would think because of the, the, the money involved in the split that had been arranged, right? No, no the, the round of 32 is where you really feel the heat. Right? That, that's the round that makes or breaks your season. Oh, good stuff. I love going down those roads. Um, U.S. Open, the Jags U.S. Open 2008 was one of the marquee races on the schedule. This was probably the heyday of the Open. I know at this point it had moved to Indy. We debated earlier in previous sessions as to when that race went from Tri-State and Cincinnati to um, what is now Lucas Oil Raceway Park in Indianapolis. But this year was definitely at Indy. And the three main event winners. <laughs> no, um, bunch of nobodies. <laughs> yeah, like it's Mount Rushmore. It's, it's Peter Bionda it's Jed Coughlin Jr. and it's Scotty Richardson and uh and just as a side note Pete in addition to winning a day was also runner up to Jaggy um and, and another side note uh in these years they did this a handful of times and we may have have uh skipped over it in previous years uh, but they would do a 32 car thousand dollar to enter twenty five thousand dollar to win um bottom ball brace I remember if it was no box or foot break, to be honest, but this was the year uh, Paul Russell won that made the trip up from Alabama. Paul's another one of those guys that like he has had huge performances on big, big stages for a guy that mm -hmm. has never really raced a lot. When you talk to him, you feel like doesn't take racing all that seriously. Right. Like he is, he's won some really big stuff in big spots. And, uh, and this is probably one of the crowning jewels of his career. Uh, Braden five days, some guy named uh, Dave Connolly won the overall points championship. Just, uh, we, we talked a little bit about Dave's exploits on a previous, uh, throwback episode. And, and this just speaks to his versatility again, like you had mentioned when he first took the wheel of a, of a competition eliminator car and pro stock, like just a natural, yeah. that's the way that I've seen Dave in anything that he's ever said in case in point, um, it's a short list uh, of racers that have won the five-day points championship, whether it be Bradenton, West Palm. And when you go through either list, it is a who's who. And for those that don't necessarily think of, uh, when you think of Dave Connolly, like the first thing that springs to mind is probably not bracket racer, but he was, he's very, very accomplished in that realm too. No, for, for sure. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we've touched on Peter a couple of times uh, this year or in, in, in this season but peter had a monster season i'd be interested to know his financials for the year because you know obviously his success we just talked about at the u.s open but also he won the twenty-five thousand dollar, uh you know the stalba event in atco and then closed the year uh he went out to vegas and won the the ultimate gambler for uh i believe 42 grand no and this is on the heels of that heartbreaking you know dual second place finish in 2007 where he finished second in the world by what a combined total of 24 points or something in, in stock yeah. and super stock we talked about last week and i can just i don't necessarily have insight to this but i can just see that mindset of like that really sucked like i'm, I'm not going to get caught up in that this year i'll just go bracket racing and then yeah. he wins every big bracket race in the country yeah <laughs> and he did um he didn't totally abandon Class racing, I, b I believe he won three NHRA national events that year, including English Town, you know, his home event. 
Uh, just an average I know, season. Yeah, I know he had some success, ran some IHRA stuff. You know, him and Anthony and the boys went. And, uh, you know, again, might also have been one of the reasons why you weren't able to close the deal on any one of the four championships. You, you might have crossed paths with Peter a time or two. Um, you know, again, it would be interesting to, to, to talk to him at some point to see what he considers his best season. Uh, I, I would certainly think uh, this one, 2008, would be in the mix. The, uh, the million returned to Memphis in 2008, where a name now synonymous with million-dollar success, Dave Triplett, won the million. At the time, that was his first million, his first million-dollar race final. And what many of you youngins may find hard to believe, Triplett did it in a dragster. This was the long skinny car. Uh, his first million was in an SB2 powered dragster, and then obviously the subsequent uh, runner-up to Kenny Underwood and this most recent season's victory were in his more familiar Vega. Um, I remember this is a, this is a fun story because I remember talking to Triplett in the lanes, I think the day of the million, but you know, it like the morning of, and we were commiserating about how we had been to this event for 10 years, or maybe Dave had been to all of them. You know what I mean? Like he was a staple of the million. I think I'd been going since last, I went to my first in 99, but we were commiserating as to how we come and donate to this event every year. And I don't even, we don't even necessarily like, I don't have to hold the trophy and, and, and drink beer out of the cup at the end. Like, I just want to get to that point. And the term we used was, I just want to get down to where we got to talk about it. I just want to yeah. be to where we talk about it, where we split. Right. And uh, whatever, later that day, the only time in my career of being there like 20 times, I got to talk about it. And Triplett got to talk about it. We'd like high five, like, hey, we're here. We're talking about it. Just like you said, right? <laughs> the talks didn't last as long for me as they did for him. Um, but to, and to your point, too, with Peter, I, re I remember pulling to the lanes at whatever, like less than 16 cars, the round that it is typically split. And I was actually in my Vega, uh, which is, is a funny story in and of itself, too, because I had a, a dear friend of mine, Jackie Rogers, in uh, Alabama. I had always looked at the million as I'm going to I don't care if I have to take out a, a loan, like I'm going to put myself into the million every year because someday I'm going to win this race. And when I win this race, it's going to change my life, right? That was my whole outlook. So whatever I had to do, beg, borrow, steer, I was putting myself in. So, and I would seemingly as, as my career progressed, get offers every year, like, Hey, let me put you in the million. Hey, let me put you in the million. No. So my buddy, Jackie Rogers, who raced with us at Sand Mountain Dragway, he's got one of, I believe he's still got it. Uh, one of Sonny Ray's old Chevy twos, right? So mm -hmm. David Ryan, his father-in-law Chevy two with a three speed four wheel line locks and would just try to flip over backwards every time he stays the most <laughs> awesome car at the track. And, and Jackie's just old farmer laid back dude. And he calls me and he says, Hey, you go on that million dollar race. Says, yeah. I, I go every year. I'd like to put you in. And I gave him my whole like pre-rehearsed story. I don't let anybody put me in the million, this and that, you know, I'm, I'm going to win the race. Oh man, that's a shame. I really want to put that Vega in. And I, I was like in the process, hang on, like Vega, dude, I'm not even taking my Vega to the million. Like, like that, no, man, you do good in that thing. And, and he's used to seeing me on Friday night at Sand Mountain in the Vega, right. you know, right? And I was like, I was trying to explain, no, look, Jackie, like, it's just, a, it's a different world. Like, I don't, I, that, that car is not the right equipment. I, I'm not going to win that race in that car. Well, I just, I, I want to put you in that Vega. I don't care nothing about that dragster. I, I was interested in the Vega. I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to take it. Two days later, he calls me back. He says, you're not going to take that Vega at all. I will put you in, right? And so he works out this deal that I just cannot refuse because the car was going to sit at home. Mm -hmm. As it ends up, I make the split in the Vega. I lost to Tommy Plot with seven cars left. 
come back the next day and lost to John LaBoose Jr. in the final of the 30 grander, again in the Vega, like won more money than I ever have in a weekend at the million, perhaps in the weekend in my career, and split it all with Jackie just because he had the faith in me, right? So, but anyway, Triplet and I down to, to 14, pulled the lanes at 14 to, and I, I think I'm the first car in the lanes. Or maybe Peter was the first car in lanes. Regardless, we're the first two, right? So he's sitting there on the wall and I walk over and I'm giddy because I'm like, this is the round. Like, we're going to get paid. Sure. And, I, and I asked Pete, I'm like, hey, man, is, is this the time we get to talk about it? And Pete was not sold. I mean, because A, he's Peter Biondo. He's had the season he's had. And he's like, right. I think we got to go another round or two. And I'm like, are you sure? You know, like, <laughs> don't you really want to do something right here? And then I think it was more, not so much the pressure for me, but the pressure from the 12 others, like everybody else wanted to split. And so Pete acquiesced and I think lost that round. Yeah. Um, and then whatever I lost at seven triplet goes on to win. Uh, what was sort of the, the foundation for what would become arguably the most illustrious million dollar race career ever, you know, as, as he keeps yeah. accumulating final rounds and wins. Um, uh, but that was kind of the start for him. It's it's interesting. We 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 talk quite a bit about Peter, and obviously his his career has transitioned on to promoting and other things, but he very rarely ran that event. You know, I, I can only remember him at a handful of millions, and, and you almost think that that that's that's a crime. I mean, that's that's Tiger Woods not playing in the Masters. That's you know, you have that much talent. You would have to think had Peter, you know, we're on year twenty four, if he had competed in any he'd have to have won it at least once, maybe a couple times. And you just wonder the, the kind of money that maybe he left on the table by not going. But, you know, again, if, if I had to race against him, I don't suppose I'd encourage that sort of thing either. <laughs> yeah. Just, 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 you can, you don't have to go to all of them. Right. right. <laughs> your kids, your uh, kids miss you. <laughs> the, uh, the other marquee uh, bracket race that has been on the calendar for as long as I can remember uh, that we haven't touched on for 2008 is the World Super Pro Challenge, the, the 50 grander in Michigan. And this one stands out for me. I was there. Um, the winner this year was a man named Mike Brumfield, racer from Indiana, who uh, this was certainly for 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 99% of racers winning any 50 would be the, the crowning jewel, right? Certainly the case for, for Mike Brumfield, but the show that he put on that day and he's a very accomplished racer he's won several big dollar bracket races uh running around with chuck mink and he was driving chuck's car at the time um but that day in stanton brumfield was unstoppable and if memory serves mike had two entries in with four remaining and then um purposely ran himself in the semifinals i, I think now i know that that race goes on a ladder and that might be the reason why but uh, Brumfield basically pulled in lanes to to make sure to advance one to the final. And I just remember that we talked about this from my own personal experience a, a week or two ago. I remember it being such a debate, you know, in the in the cheap seats as we're all watching at the finish line. Right. Like if you were in that position, would you like I see the, the, the value in advancing one to the final? Like, wouldn't you want to to take that chance and see if you could run yourself in the final? Right. But Brumfield elected to do that and then came back in the final opposite Brian Folk and won the 50. So he basically undefeated on the day um, with a win and a semi. I'm sure it worked out well financially, but there's got to be that part of you that says, should I just taken a swing at that? You know, I mean, could you imagine? I don't, I don't think anybody's ever run themselves in the final of 50 grander, right? No, and, and that goes to our previous conversation of what sort of a split would you make, if at all? If I have two entries in at 14 or seven or, or whatever, I, I would be really hesitant to 
to discuss any sort of a deal. Uh, I mean, th th this would have to be my best friend and the guy I traveled with before I would want to take a dollar off the top. Yeah, it's because uh, just I don't even remember how this played out, but I was in a similar situation at, at one of the Huntsville races a couple of years ago with the Drag Race Results Series. I had two cars in at four, I think, and one of the competitors was wanting I think I had the buy in one like I was guaranteed it was a unique situation right where I was guaranteed to get to the next round with one of them and they wanted to do a deal there and I'm like I don't want to be a dick but like this I would be giving away guaranteed money you know what I mean like I have one sure. entry in next round and potentially two and so it's it's all situational but yeah I don't I don't remember the details of that for some reason I want to say that they went ahead and agreed to some type of field-wide deal maybe at four but it obviously was was loaded a little bit top heavier to guarantee Brumfield more money for the final. Like I don't remember how they made it all make sense, but it seemed like it was a fair deal to everyone involved. I love getting into the split talks because we, we there's so many. It's so situational and unique. It, it is fascinating, and you you could write a book on it. You know, I I think most bracket racers, you know, as we talked, they they look at it more of an emotional decision of I don't want to be the bad guy. Okay, I'll take that. You know, you, you know, obviously it costs a lot of money to run these. Whereas, if you were a professional poker player and you were looking at it, you would pretty much let the math dictate any kind of a split as far as you know your ability to win the tournament, how you felt like your talent level stacked up against the rest of the field. You know, you, you would probably look at it a little more of a mathematical approach. Um, you know, but again, at some point, common sense needs to take over and. You know, I wouldn't, it costs four or $5,000 a weekend to go to some of these events. If you've got two entries or, uh, you know, you, you need to at some point recruit some of that. So um, I, I think I can see it from all sides. Yeah, no. And it just seems like within that subculture, there's such a brotherhood, you know what I mean? Like, I almost yeah. think it's difficult to, to get around that. I, I do tend to think and then there are certainly instances where the, the, the math takes over and, and I, I'm not ever going to fault anybody for whether it's splitting down the middle or just putting all the money in the pot and racing for all of it. You guys do what you want to do, right? You know, whatever everybody agrees right. on, that's fine. And there's certainly no fault in racing for the advertised purse, but uh, it's, it, that aspect of it has become a little bit more prevalent here lately. I think just because we get more comfortable and more familiar with racing for the amount of money that we are like there's just so many of the bigger dollar events available that it, it numbs it to some extent but in over the course of history like there's been so few no split finals and and that's the only real reason that i can give is that it's almost like i don't know i guess you gotta i don't know if that's really validated or warranted or not but there's just this sense of like i'm gonna have to see all these people again next week or next year i'm gonna race with this guy my whole life like i don't want to start bad blood i don't know if that's the right approach well it, it probably is because you've seen you've probably seen many examples of this the mob mentality that sometimes goes when you have that meeting in the staging lanes you know it, it's not just the the 10 12 14 drivers that are left you know usually there's a crowd of onlookers some of them may may or may not have been drinking alcohol or, you know, that, I mean, I've seen it where it, it's borderline a riot and you think you guys are discussing life-changing amounts of money here. And, and this has kind of been turned into a, a you know, a, a sideshow, um, you know, and again, I, I think track operators, uh, promoters recognize that. And I think lately the last few years I've been to like some of the bigger races, you know, I think they do a pretty good job of controlling it. 
kind of organized chaos as opposed to a free-for-all. Um, you know, but again, there's a little of that. And, and it also, I, I just, I can't help but think of, uh, I think I brought this up on one of the previous things, the, the famous Randy Folk quote from many years ago, where he had a guy who, who he wasn't real familiar with. I think it was in the final of a five grander came up and said, oh, Mr. Folk, do you want to split? And Randy being Randy says, if I can't beat you, I don't deserve any of it and walked away. <laughs> the uh no to your point george was always really good about that george howard would sure. kind of take the bull by the horns late in the million and gather the remaining racers and i think the rule if i remember correctly was driver and one spokesperson like yeah. let's get in a group and nobody else gets in this huddle you know what i mean and, and i i think there's i think there is a solid argument to be made for that that's the way i would like to see it done everywhere um and to your point um the, the situation that we talked about with Underwood, whatever it was, two years ago with the million, I feel like that mob mentality aspect is what made his performance even that much more impressive because sure. A, what we just talked about, he's racing one round for whatever the numbers were. It was like forty-five, fifty, $55,000 on one win light. And couple that with the fact that he just pissed everybody in the staging lanes off, right? right? the point that i think there are people like kind of in his face you know uh, there's just a lot going on there you know financially mentally socially like to be able to compartmentalize all that and make the run that he did with all that on the line like i just i look back in awe of that and, and i know there are still people that, that look down on him for the decision that he made but i'm like damn you know <laughs> and there are people uh, sad to say that you know he, he's sitting in the water box that would walk by and say, I hope you get beat. You know, that I want that guy to kick your ass. And, and you, you think of what, uh, what effect that effect that might have emotionally, you know, take, take the money part out of it. Just, you know, as you said, to have the whole field, everybody on the starting line, basically rooting against you. Um, you know, that that's, that's got to play into your psyche as well. It's an interesting dynamic. All right. Shout outs, closeouts, what you got to close us out. Uh, f fingers crossed, you know, we're seeing more good news. Tracks are starting to open. I know some tracks have had some, some very successful events, whether it's weekly bracket events, you know, we had the, uh, uh the Tulsa event, the, you know, pro mod small tire race last week that I believe was fairly successful. And I, I just, I think we're getting closer to hopefully, uh, you know, restarting some NHRA race stuff. I, I know there's some, uh, Lucas oil series events on the docket coming up that, you know, again, ha have not at this point uh, been rescheduled. Uh, you know, I believe we're looking at maybe one down in Division Four. Uh, just really hope we've turned the corner on this thing, and that uh, we can we can all get back to uh, we can all get back to racing and, and something that resembles a normal life. Yeah, I feel like there's been so many ebbs and flows of this. Like we talked about, where a couple of weeks ago it felt like there was this sense of optimism that kind of quickly got shot down at least in a lot of areas and it felt like okay that's coming but maybe we we're just a little bit premature in optimism and so then we went back down in this lull of thinking oh this is this is never going to happen or it's 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 not going to happen as quickly as we would like i feel like the optimism is back and and you can't just say um overarching everywhere because obviously there are pockets of the country that are are, are still um dealing with this in different ways and, and, and more devastated than others. But it seems like by and large, there are, to your point, more events happening, more events being scheduled. Um, it seems like optimism reigns, you know, 
almost uh, universally across the country. So that's a good thing to see. Hopefully we're not setting ourselves up for disappointment. It feels different this time and that we are kind yeah. of on the right trajectory, mm -hmm. um, but we'll see what happens next. It's obviously a fluid situation. Um, to your point, I think the first, I saw that uh, one of the divisional events in new media, which was scheduled for the first week of June has been postponed. But at the same time, there is a Division Four event scheduled in Tulsa that weekend that I would just have to assume from everything we're seeing from Oklahoma should, if, if nothing starts before then, like you would think that that race sure. would go off, right? Yeah, and, and you wonder based on what we saw at the bracket race there at Ardmore, you know, where you had an overwhelming car count, uh, is, is it possible you'll see something similar there um, at the Lucas Oil Series event, you know, would you have drivers from all over Division Two, you know, two, three, five that say, "Hey, I'm up for a road trip. I'm eager to race. My stuff's been sitting for two months. Um, let, let's go make hay while the sun shines." So, um, you know, hopefully, there's a bit of that. Obviously, I'd like to see everybody open, but we're probably quite a ways from that. But you know, it does seem like in in many of the markets where we race, turn in the corner. You know, I know I can speak for here in Indianapolis. Uh, Lucas Oil Raceway is looking at here over the next couple of weeks, you know, a very limited test session to start. I know there's a chassis inspection coming up that I believe filled up. And then I think by early to mid-June, looking at something more of a, a normal schedule of like, you know, the wild Wednesday tune-in tests and then, you know, some bracket races coming up. And, uh, you know, the plan here in the state, at least, you know, what the governor has announced is to have the state fully open by July 4th weekend, which happens to be the Brickyard event, you know, NASCAR. Uh, if that's the case, then, you know, that would take the restraints off. And, you know, as, as, as long as uh, people continue to stay healthy and we don't see, you know, huge outbreaks, we, we could resume something that resembles a normal schedule here uh, statewide. So, um, you know, again, I, I take that as an encouraging sign and just hope everybody uh, takes care, stays healthy, and we get back after it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all, we're all beyond ready for that, but at the same time, want to do it as a uh as the time is right and, and uh, safe and socially acceptable and all that good stuff. So Kevin, as always, thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun. We'll be back next Wednesday um, with, I guess we'll just jump right into 2009. 2009. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope that, uh, you know, but before we get to about 2011 or so, you know, we've, we've gotten to a normal, uh, uh, into a normal routine. So. But, but yes, the, the, these are a lot of fun. Um, it, it's amazing what you can learn when you do a little research back, you know, even though we're only a little more than a decade, um, you know, so, so some of the things you forget, for example, I, I did not remember that Dave Triplett won the million in a dragster. Um, and, I, and I was even there, didn't remember it. I just, uh, you know, I see him and I see the Black Vega and, and yeah, that's um, some, some good trivia good stuff and it's it's fun just for the perspective that that uh, hindsight provides you know what i mean it's fun to revisit this 10 15 years later so as always enjoyed it kmac take care of yourself stay healthy and uh appreciate all you guys watching and or listening we'll be back next week sounds good Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. 
led by knowledgeable professionals. Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors, and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100-plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.